Jaybird shows the Hells Angels proof that he had just killed a rival biker from the Mongols. And he goes to the box and he pulls some stuff out and he comes to the Mongol vest and he's got his back to everybody. And Joby says, whoa. And then one of the Hells Angels says, well, what is it? And he turns around and he's like, it's a Mongol cut and there's blood dripping down it. And then he, they start passing it around and then they start looking at the pictures and they start talking about it. Like, Hey, how'd you do it? Like, do you hit him here? And it looks like the, like the back of his head was blown out. And they're like completely fascinated by this murder. Um, now prior to the deliver the, the delivery of the, of the fabricated murder, I told my partner, uh, uh, an, uh, an officer named Bill Long, who went by the name of Timmy in the case, he was with me when we delivered this. And so we were bringing these, these hell's angels into our trailer to, to show them that we had committed a murder. And like, we didn't know what the reaction was going to be. We didn't know if it would be embraced or if they were going to feel like compromised because now they had become an accomplice. We had made them accomplices in a murder. Welcome to Game of Crimes. You're saying the you bus signal for the out. third time, and people go, "Why do you keep asking where Bugs Bunny is?" You know, that's well, the third. Yeah. Uncle Charlie, to, Uncle Charlie, Charlie, Uncle Charlie, Uncle Charlie. Hey, well, who's Uncle Charlie? Well, you'll hey. find out here in about thirty seconds. <laughs> yeah. Hey, but Steve, real quick too, you used a not a not an acronym this time, but you said Kel Unit. Yeah. So that's that's the name of a piece of uh, equipment that it's a wireless recorder as well as a wireless transmitter. Uh, so when you're working undercover, you can wear it under your clothes or you know up your rear end or wherever. And hopefully your cover team can hear what's going on. <laughs> well, you know, Steve and 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 Morgan, maybe yourself too. Like, and and I'm dating myself a little bit. I do not like like looking at myself as an old guy, but like I'm 60 years old now, so I I, I guess I am. But when I first started um, working undercover, we were still using Nagra, Nagra tape recorders, reel to reel, the Nagra reel to reel, you know, and duct taping that in the small of your back. And people mm. don't get that today with the advancement of technology and, and, and how important technology is into capturing electronic evidence, both audio and video and, and how amazing it is today. We had little mini reel to reel tape recorders mm -hmm. that we were duct taping in the small of our back and using those to record the audio of, of, of illegal undercover transactions. And how many times did those batteries get so hot it burned your skin? <laughs> right, and then and then, uh, and then then peeling that uh, duct tape off, you know, raw skin. You know, you're pulling hair and skin off, trying to get the, 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 re the recorder off. And you know what, actually, like, I look back at those days um, now, like with a very romantic view of it. It was like, man, those were the good old days. Those were the golden days, yes. Those Those were the when, they first, when they first came out the page, just before cell phones, they created a pager that had a hidden microphone. And so that was your new NAGRA unit, you know, that you could transmit your wireless transmitter so surveillance could keep up with you. And that was just the coolest thing in the world. But they might have been a little bit bigger. They might have looked a little weird. But it was cool stuff. Well, though. again, I mean, and I know I'm dating myself, but I think it, it it's a demonstration of the evolution of technology is that, mm -hmm. like, when, when I first started, like... The, like we didn't have cell phones. If you wanted to call a bad guy, like I kept a, a, a Roll crown of royal bag yeah. of quarters in my car and you mm -hmm. found a pay phone 
And you went and called the bad guy using quarters, man. There was no, yeah. like you were hoping to catch him at home or you, you, I mean, you weren't, you weren't IMing people or texting people yeah. or, or using social media <laughs> to contact. You were like getting on an AT&T Bell telephone and putting quarters in it and having conversations on the phone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We had an undercover case one time. We we're working with the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. We sent the UC out. Speaking of recorders, had you know one of the micro cassette recorders with a real nice mic and stuff. We said just put it in your jacket pocket because he wasn't going to get searched. We knew that, but go up there, do the deal, come back. So he brings his tape back. We turn it on, and all we hear is. He was wearing a nylon jacket. One of our lessons learned: you never put a very sensitive microphone inside the pockets of those down no nylon jackets because that's all we heard was. One of my one of my favorite uh, undercover stories is I was partnered with an agent, an ATF agent named Darren Kozlowski, who was, when, when I talk about people that like I wanted to be like, and who were like super just amazing undercover agents, I wanted to be like Koz. He was one of my peers. And technology had advanced to the point where there was a recording, a, a recorder that was placed in a, a key fob, like a, a car opener. And we just all thought that was the coolest thing ever. And Koz had one. Koz had this rec this recorder key fob. And we're meeting with a guy on a on an undercover deal. And the dude is wearing a like a cutoff shirt. And it's a pretty nice shirt, but he's cut the sleeves off it and he's got a string hanging off of it, off the side of it. And he's like, Man, does one of you guys have a knife or something or some scissors that I can use to cut this string? I'm afraid if I pull it, it's gonna fray my shirt. And Kaz holds up his key fob. He's like, I don't have a knife, but I got a freaking uh uh, tape recorder inside my uh, car alarm. And the dude looked at him like, what? And I looked at Kaz like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and he's like, man, they're never, they, they don't know what this is. This ain't ever going to make any sense to them. And the dude, it just blew right over his head. He had no, like, none of us knew what that was. <laughs> Oh, that's pretty wild. Oh man, that's that's where you're, that's where you're uh, doing that. Well, let's let's get back into talking about because the other thing I want you to talk about is, is this character when when like the boys are sitting around the campfire, you know, and there's a uh, hundred beer cans on the ground. Kaz is the guy who was like, "Look, I don't know about the rest of you guys. Like, I ain't getting hit by a bus, and I'm not having a heart attack at my desk. When I go out, I'm gonna go out duct taped." to a freaking folding chair with some bad guy putting a sawed off shotgun in my mouth. I ain't going out any other way. That was, that was the, the nuts job cause that my partner was. And that's the guy you wanted to emulate. I, I wanted to take his good things and I wanted to like distance myself from his uh, risky things. Here's that's to why keep... we do these interviews virtually instead in person. <laughs> Nothing personal, Jay Bird. No. Yeah, we don't know what's going to be coming. Hey, talk real quickly about the origin now. You, you Everything, every operation has to have a name. So you guys came up with the operation Black Biscuit. And I got to tell you, I did. I thought it was one thing until I read the book. Then I realized mm -hmm. something totally different. So how did you come up with the name Black Biscuit? Well, when when uh, when Joe Slatella, when Slats said, "Hey, we're going to call this operation Black Biscuit," my first question was, "Dude, th that's racist. Like, like I don't think you can put that on a report." He's like, "Dude, it's not racist." Slats was a huge hockey fan, and he's like, "Black Biscuit is a hockey puck," and I'm like, "What does that have to do with infiltrating the Hell's Angels?" And he's like, "Dude, you're not getting it. It has nothing to do. Yeah, that's the with point. Infiltrating the Hell's Angels. Like anybody that reads this, anybody that picks up a report that says Operation Black Biscuit on it, like there's no red flag there. Like, like this is this is part of our uh, our internal security mm -hmm. to like try to keep this underground. And now Slats 
Uh, real quick on Joe Slatella, uh, the guy who was my case agent was an absolute brilliant traditional investigator, the smartest investigator that I ever personally crossed paths with. I've said this many times publicly and privately. If my kids were kidnapped and we didn't know where they were, and I could pick one cop to go find them and do justice for them, it would be Joe Slatella. That's a hell of a compliment. Yeah, well, let's hope. Let's hope we don't have to uh, prove that point. So uh, keep the fingers crossed. But so yeah, you know, but you bring up a good point too. There's a lot of reasons whether it's the FBI or the CIA or whatever. You got to give operations code name because you're not operation code name is not going to be infiltrate hell's angels and arrest everybody. <laughs> you know that kind of gives it away, right? But uh, or some people are too smart for their own good. We won't call it hell's angels, but we'll call it biker madness or something like that. Nah, nah. Just I, I like blast. I was thinking black biscuit. It's like somebody's bad cooking or I was thinking of not a hockey puck, but maybe an explosive or something, but no, but that's pretty cool. So you come up with that. When does this operation start kicking into gear and, um, and then start giving us an idea about how you start developing these roles. Cause one of the things I thought was really interesting, you could spend a lot of years. We had a, we had a master class on gangs, outlaws, outlaw motorcycle gangs, the previous episode from Steve cook. And we talked about, you know, everything from the hangarounds or the associates to the hangarounds to the prospects to becoming a fully patched member, that could take you a long time. These you're not allowed to have an unlimited amount of time to do these investigations. So how do you balance the need for speed um, with uh, not wanting to get caught up in the process of becoming an associate or a hangaround or prospect? Because quite frankly, if you were any of those roles, you're nothing but somebody's bitch for a year and a half. Morgan, you hit it on the head. Is that in law enforcement? Um the clock is ticking when you start an investigation. You don't have forever to acquire contraband and then let that lead to arrests and convictions. You have to work fast and you have to overcome what we talked about earlier, that unique paranoia. Um, you're, tr you're trying to get next to people who don't want to be gotten next to. Um, you haven't grown up with these guys. You don't have years of trust established with them. You have to work quickly, which is why it's so important to make a good first impression. You, you, you get one chance to make a first impression and you have to get it right if you want to advance the case with any speed. Uh, Slats built this, this master plan uh, to some extent around my role that I had previously been serving as this debt collector gun runner in Bullhead City. I had already had overlap with the Hells Angels. They knew me like as a street thug, as this white trash, uh, peckerwood uh, gangster that was in Bullhead City. Um, but it didn't have a, a, a biker element to it. Um, Slats developed an informant that was associated with a biker gang, uh, not associated, was a member of a biker gang in Tijuana, Mexico. And Slats had this informant compromised, and he agreed to help introduce our undercover team to th this biker gang in Tijuana, Mexico called the Solo Angels, which were their own outlaw 1% um, uh, criminal biker organization. And so we used that informant, we used his introductions and basically strong-armed our way into the, into the solo angels, not to investigate the solo angels, but to use their patch and to use their notoriety for credibility in the eyes of the hell's angels that we were part of that world, that we were part of that environment. That, that Jaybird wasn't just this rogue debt-collecting gunrunner that had a house in Bullhead City. He was actually attached to an outlaw biker gang 
that was real and believable and credible. And that also accelerated the investigation, too, because to your point, you don't have to start off as a, an associate, you know, and hang around or prospect. You're a fully patched member of Solo Angels. Um, and so now you've got that, in a sense, respect. They, they may not consider you an equal at that point, but they respect you because you're fully patched. You've got your own gang. How much did that help advance the speed of the investigation by taking that angle? Well, we skipped, we skipped a lot of steps. Um, because we uh, ha had created credibility in the outlaw biker gang world. The Hells Angels uh, would never look at the Solo Angels as their equals, but we were at least peers in that world. And so it gave us the opportunity to ride with them, to attend their parties, to go to their clubhouses, and to do it you know, without showing up in a pickup truck. Now we were showing up in motorcycles with, with gang vests on and, and formatted in a way they understood. And we knew exactly who we were as solo angels. We knew that we were like, you know, the, the, uh, the disregarded second cousins of the, of the hell's angels. We were fine with that. And we just played with it. We like, I mocked and mimicked and, 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 and tried to repeat everything I saw the hell's angels doing as a solo angel. And I was open about it. I was like, you guys, the Hell's Angels, you guys are the king of the mountain. You guys are who everybody who rides a motorcycle in a biker gang someday dreams and hopes to be. So when I see you do something, I do it. When I see you act a certain way, I act that way. You got like I I played into that ego of the Hell's Angels and 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 made them feel like they were the king of the mountain and acknowledged to them that I understood that they were like the absolute top shelf five-star uh, players in the biker gang world. But at the same time, you're also showing respect and that's what it's about, right? Give respect to get respect, no doubt. Let's talk real quickly about the origin of Solo Angels because I was just making the contrast, Hell's Angels, Solo Angel. Was there any, uh, from a historical aspect, the naming of the gang to, in a sense, pay homage to the Hell's Angels? Or did that come up? just organically had nothing to do with HA. Yeah. I don't believe there was any overlap or there was any design behind that. I could be wrong um, in the history of the solo angels. All I know is that they were like a one, uh, uh, like a, a one gang uh, outfit based in Tijuana, Mexico. Most of their membership was Hispanic. They had a few white boys in it. Um, and this informant took me and my partner uh, to meet with the, leadership of the solo angels. And to some extent, well, not even to some extent, to full extent, we extorted our way into the solo angels. We knew that we needed their patch for credibility in the eyes of the hell's angels. And so the solo angels were like a broke down gang. They didn't have much money. They didn't have much going on. And we promised that by um, allowing us to be solo angel members um, outside of their area of operations in Tijuana, Mexico, to take that name to, you know, into the Hells Angels world, that one, we were going to be tying them and putting them next to the premier outlaw biker gang on the planet, the Hells Angels, and that we would feed money down to the solo angels so that they could throw parties and improve their clubhouse and do all those things. Ultimately, that cover story uh, blew up on us. Um, like, like by my own error, by my own failure, but that's at least where we started. You yeah, know, but I'm, I'm looking at the patch right now that, that, that chopper, that motorcycle on their back is kind of cheesy looking to tell you the truth. 
Yeah, it looks like like uh, like someone drew it with a crayon. It really does. Or maybe it's a '63 Panhead that can barely keep up with the rest of the bikes. You know, but it it fit it fit that gang so perfectly, man. Yeah. It like it's kind of hokey looking. And there's nothing glamorous about it, but the fact that it was just kind of down and dirty and simple and recognized, like that, all worked to mm -hmm. our advantage. And one thing I want to put in perspective too, this comes out of your book too, but also from Steve Cook. But there, you know, you say there were four major outlaw clubs: are the Pagans in the East, the Outlaws in the Midwest, which I knew about being from there. The Banditos in Texas, we obviously heard about them. But the Hell's Angels, what made them different is not only were they in like all over the United States, not in every state, but all over, but they were in twenty foreign countries. Uh, Steve made the point, and you made the point in your book: outlaw motorcycle gangs, especially the Hell's Angels, are one of the very few criminal exports the United States has. We don't have cartels. They come in here. We don't have the mafia. They come in here. But OMGs, not oh my gods for you millennials out there, outlaw motorcycle gangs, that is an organic American export. You know, Cookie is is spot on with that assessment. And and he's, uh, you know, he's got uh, more knowledge on on the history and the mechanics of, of all these different gangs than probably anybody. Um, and, and he's 100% accurate. Um, the Hells Angels grew from this like ragtag group, you know, in San Bernardino and then ultimately moved their mother chapter into Oakland. They they had foresight and they had brilliance in the fact that they turned this like kind of group of misfits into an international organized crime syndicate. It's huge. Going back to the Solo Angels, too, you talked about buying your way in. It really didn't cost you a lot of money. I mean, I think you're right. It, it, you only threw like about $3,000 at these guys, which in the terms of a long, complex investigation, that's not a lot of money. But that small amount of money basically set the stage for what became a very successful operation. It did. It, it ultimately, you know, down the road in the, in the infiltration, it backfired on us. Um, because that was our promise to the solo angels that we were going to, um, get them next to the hell's angels and, and give, a, a gang that was broke down with not much to show for itself. Notoriety. We, we upheld that promise. The promise we didn't upheld is that when we, um, started rolling with the hell's angels, then we neglected the solo angels because we had gotten what we wanted from them. We were using their patch. We were wearing their patch. And we took for granted, I took for granted, that um, I needed to, to, to tend to that relationship. Like any relationship, um, boy-girl relationships, family relationships, um, you have to put time and attention into them to keep them alive and thriving and to succeed. Well, I had gotten what I wanted from the Solo Angels, which was to wear their patch, and we stopped sending money to them. And we stopped catering to them and we stopped like paying homage to their mother chapter in Tijuana. And when that happened, they got pissed and they went to solo angels, went to members of the hell's angels and said, Hey man, I don't know if you know who the fuck you're dealing with, man. Like we got, we're sensing that these guys are kind of counterfeit. They promised to like feed money down here and send motorcycles down here and prop us up. And we never fucking see from those dudes, those dudes, they never come down here. They're not a part of this. And that caused huge problems for us. It, like it's like a plant, you know. You, you feed and water it; it goes great. But if you ignore it, it wilts. But that didn't if I would happen. Have been in, smart enough to to just keep throwing uh, a little cash at them. that relationship. Yeah. Like that problem never would have came. And I took for granted that I had gotten what I wanted from them, and and turned that relationship into a one way street. And that didn't go over too good uh, over the course of time. 
Yeah, but you know, in, in the context of everything, you know, that's a huge lesson that can be passed on to other investigations and stuff. It's like, just because you got what you need out of the informant or the or the gang or whatever, you've got to keep that relationship going until everything concludes because you ignore it at your own peril. But so start walking us through now. Now you start launching this. You've got to start building credibility with the Hell's Angels. I mean, you start you start doing things, you know. So, what are some? What are the goals of Operation Black Biscuit? What is it you guys are trying to build? Because you're going to talk later about making a RICO case, which is kind of the that's that is the huge hammer that you can. That's the death, you know. That's the death sentence for a gang is getting a you know uh, getting a RICO case made against you. So, what were the goals of Black Biscuit? What were you guys trying to achieve out of this at the end? The goal was never. At any point, at least Joe Slatella's goal was never at any point to to create an infiltration. It was to do a side by side investigation, because if we stayed side by side with the Hells Angels, we maintained control over what we did, where we went. Um, uh, we can we maintain control over our activities. And so initially, that's where we started. We. Um, we're riding side by side these guys. We were going to their parties. We were involved in gun deals, drug deals with them as, as a peer club, as a support club to them, as, as a fan club of theirs. And so we were doing, you know, we, we, we were just operating as an independent outlaw biker gang, the Solo Angels, who happened to be friends and, and side by side with the Hells Angels. Um, ultimately, um, and, and, and we, were, we were finding success in it. Like we were making friends and we were building reputations and we were, you know, we were loved and, 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 uh, admired and respected on some levels by the hell's angels. Then we get to that point where the solo angels compromise our cover story that I mentioned earlier, that, that we were not living up to the promises we made to them. And they made that that uh, accusation to members of the Hell's Angels, where I was ultimately challenged on that. And it like that event, that challenge event was not only what appeared to be the end of the case, it was a life or death meeting, really. In it, it, like not only in real time, in hindsight, maybe even more in hindsight, in real time, I was just trying to fight my way through the problem. Yeah. What was your first inkling? Did you know that the, the guys from TJ from Tijuana were going to come up and talk to the HAs or how did you find out? I, you know what? I found out about it, it, it like in a backdoor way, in a very treacherous way The my, my main contact into the hell's angels, the guy I had developed the closest relationship with and who had the greatest influence within the hell's angels was the president of the Mesa charter, a guy named uh, Robert Johnston. He went by the street name of bad Bob. And I got a call one day from bad Bob who said, Hey, Jay bird, man, we got a problem. We got a big problem and I need to meet with you. I'm like, okay, well, like, what's up? What's the problem? He's like, some of my boys talk to the, to the solo angels, dude, we've got a huge problem. And, um, at that point, the task force that we had built, like we pretty much figured the case was done. Like we've been compromised. Um, and we actually started like looking at like our, uh, you know, our suspect board as to like, who's indictable? What evidence do we have? What kind of cases do we have? Like if we have to close down today, what kind of case can we present to prosecutors? And I made the argument. I'm like, man, let me like, let me, let me try to save this. And, and they're like, dude, are you fucking kidding me, man? Like you're blown up. Your cover story is compromised. And I was like, give me a chance. And, and really no one was in favor of it. 
um, I, I wasn't necessarily thinking, I wasn't thinking uh, logically or clearly at that point. I was, I was very caught up in the, in the process. And so I went to a meeting with, with Bad Bob and we found out afterwards, it was actually like, it was going to be an assassination. I go to a meeting with Bad Bob and he tells me like, hey man, like some of my boys talk to the Hells Angels and you're not for real. And I relied on all that groundwork that I had built over time with Bad Bob. And I'm like, dude, you got bad information. Those dudes in Tijuana, those solo angels, they're pissed off because what they're saying is true. Like I didn't try to avoid the truth. We ignore those dudes. We're not sending money down there. We're not paying attention to them. All those things that they, that he was told, I just confirmed. I didn't try to run from it. I'm like, those guys are fucking poop butts down there, dude. Like I got nothing to do with them. They are not the real deal, man. They're just around to fucking have a party and fucking ride their motorcycles. That's bullshit. That's not what I'm about. I'm about money. I'm about guns. I'm about drugs. I'm about freaking like doing the things we do. And I told Bob, I said, you need to reflect on our history. Think about all the things we've done together. Think about all the time we've spent together, the drug deals, the gun deals, all the things, all the respect I've shown you. And you tell me that I'm not for real. You tell me that you think that I'm like a fucking, what, an informant, a cop? Fuck that. You know in your heart that that's not true. You need to call off the dogs. And Bob, he's smoking and he's thinking and he's processing it. Um, I showed him pictures of me at the Solo Angels Clubhouse in Tijuana with Solo Angels hanging on me. I said, does this look like I'm counterfeit? Does this look like someone who ran a fucking game on these dudes? Picked up his phone and he called the people that were, you know, causing problems for us and said, hey, man, you, like we need to back off. Like I trust these dudes. The information you got is right, but it's only half right. And they've and they've explained their their position with the with the Solo Angels. And I believe them. And I'm, and I've got these guys back. And then at that point he hung up and Bob said, here's the deal, dude. I ain't putting up with this solo angel bullshit. You're bringing drama into my life that I don't need. You guys become hell's angels or you take that solo angel patch off and you never ride in Arizona again. Those are your choices. So what went from being intended to be a side-by-side -side investigation mm -hmm. now was forced almost into being an infiltration. So, and, and so by that, if they're telling you, you're going to have to join HAs, that means you've got to become a prospect, right? Went or you have to, to the, patch over. Went to the, well, that, that was the initial process. The initial promise is, hey, we're going to fast patch you guys and we're going to like make this short and sweet. The reality of it is, is that we went to the bottom of the hierarchy. We went down to like back to the hangaround stage with the solo, with the Hells Angels. They, they, uh, they were going to make us reprove ourselves. So we went from, you know, I was the, uh, the, you were pseudo the president. president. Yeah. This, I was this, the pseudo president of the solo yeah. angels in Arizona to a hell's angels hangaround, which meant everything that I had done. And that reputation, that title was meaningless. I was washing motorcycles and I was selling t-shirts at biker runs. And I was going out and, and fetching McDonald's for members who, uh, snap their fingers. And it wasn't like, like, what are you going to do? It's like, like, I'm going to tell you what you do and you're going to go do that. No questions asked. Hey, you know, I don't, I don't think we covered this Morgan uh, in this interview yet. Can you tell us the different phases? Cause you're talking about hangarounds, a prospect, a patch member. What's the difference with that for our listeners? 
the 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 very most basic association is just that you're an associate you are uh, a friend of the gang you maybe go to runs you buy t-shirts you show support for the for the gang in that associate phase like members are getting to know you you're getting to know members if if you both agree that like maybe you want to make the move into the Hells Angels, you ultimately can be awarded a hangaround uh, title patch. And, and a hangaround is exactly what it says. You are hanging around the gang. You've now taken a step closer. And in that hangaround phase, like the hangaround is deciding, is this the life that I want to live or that I can live? And members are looking at you or saying like, is this the kind of person that we want to let even closer? You're hanging around. You move from a hangaround to a prospect phase. And as a prospect is exactly what you are. You are a prospective member. Um, I was told when I got my prospect patch, you're a member without his patch. Every rule of this gang applies to you like it does to a member. So you're somewhere in between this. this uh, you're kind of in purgatory. You're, you're in you no are. man's land. Yeah. <laughs> you're in between a hangaround and a member. You're still like responsible for all the uh, hangaround duties, all those subservient uh, roles that a hangaround fills. But you're not a you're not a member yet. But like all the rules are being applied to you. And this was you know this process was was very frustrating for Slats because in his design it was never an infiltration case. And he didn't want to make an infiltration case. He wanted us to be side by side because he wanted to maintain control. Now as prospects, hangarounds, and then as prospects, we had lost all the control. If the Hells Angels said, I need you in San Diego in two days. I need you in Oakland or Los Angeles or Las Vegas. Like we had to go. We didn't have that freedom anymore as a solo angel saying, hey, man, I'm going to take a pass on this one. We'll catch you guys when you get back. We had to go. We had lost all control. Hey, before we get too far down on this path, I want to back up a little bit too, because this gets into the uh, murder that you faked of one of the Mongols, um, but that you laid the groundwork for that a long time ago. And actually what the fun part was, if people will go back, I believe it was episode 18, as I pull up our episode list here, I believe it was episode 18, was I right? Yes, uh, no, I'm sorry, episode 17 was Sherry Oz. Sherry was a Phoenix police officer who actually had a minor role in Operation Black Biscuit with you for a while, but we taught, she learned from that because they ended up faking a death later based upon the tradecraft that you guys had shown. So let's talk about this faking of the Mongol death because you you said it earlier, they were blood uh, enemies. I mean, they were just, if you saw a Mongol, your basically sworn duty was to kill them or take care of them. So when did you lay the groundwork for what would become a very important part of your credibility later? Real briefly, Sherry, in, in, in her humility and graciousness, may have characterized her role as a minor role, but her role was a major role. We, we brought some women into the case, and we can discuss on, we can touch on that if you want to, but, but her role was super important, um, and she was super valuable. So I, I don't agree with her characterization that it was a minor role. She's I think humble she was like very you. Important. She, she, mm -hmm. She's like you. She just minimizes her role because she's given a lot of credit to the other people. But no, she was great. But talk about that because, you know, you when we talk, earlier. I mean, that was, it was almost like a two year, maybe an 18 month, you laid the groundwork for something that you knew. Explain to people, explain to people that because I want them to understand how you laid the groundwork for something that you never knew it was going to happen. But if it happened, it might take years for this to come about. 
when I first uh, like started interacting with the Hell's Angels uh, as a as a solo angel, as a friend of the Hell's Angels, as a support club, a duck club, uh, a fan club of the Hell's Angels, I wanted to show them that I was all in for them, the, uh, that I was willing to go to war for them and with them. Um, and one of the m- most early questions I asked of the Hell's Angels leadership is if I cross paths with the Mongol, like, what are my instructions? What do you want me to do? Without hesitancy, without a second thought, the, re- the reaction and the answer was quick. It's your job to kill them. I took that information and I put that in my back pocket and I, and I held on to that for a long time. That was the mentality. If I cross paths with the Mongol, either as an associate of the Hell's Angel um, or now as a Hell's Angels hanger on a prospect, I was expected to find a way to kill that guy. And, and, and I, uh, like I hung on to that, um, hoping someday I'd be able to put it in play, but uh, actually planning for someday to put that in play, um, planning over months and years to put that information in play. What point in the investigation did you get the chance to put this in play? Because you go through some stages. You go through from where now you're the solo angels, you're the interim president, you're the acting president, because Rudy um, got sideways with his nose in the junk and had to be removed from the case. So you guys staged a very authentic takedown, arrested him, you know, felon in possession of a firearm. So you got a legitimate way for Rudy now to be out of the picture, and you take over. So at what point does it go from you uh, get this information, hey, we're going to kill the Mongols when we find them. You go through all of this stuff to where you have this come to Jesus talk with Bob, and he lays down the laws that if you want to do this now, you've got to to come over to the Hell's Angels. What point in time does this uh, scam that you're running, basically this uh, fake murder uh, with uh, Pops, end up happening during the course of this investigation? You know, uh, time was not on our side. Effort and energy and uh, resiliency was wearing thin. We were like, you know, coming, you know, nearing the end of the investigation, I was still a prospect. And um, to be quite honest, this is not a flattering statement to make of myself, but it's an honest statement. I stopped making decisions for the good of the investigation. And I started making selfish decisions for, for Agent Jay Dobbins or the undercover persona of Jay Bird Davis. Hey, stop right there for a second, because that is an important point I want to explore for just a minute before we get into this. At what point did that persona of Jay Bird, Jay Davis, take over Special Agent Jay Dobbins of ATF? At what point did you kind of have that crossover to where you started making these decisions in your in your own interest as opposed to the interest of the case? Because that's always a danger in a UC role. Are you actually living the role or are you just playing the role? Well, I, I had become so saturated in being Jaybird Davis, um, and and actually, well before uh, Operation Black Biscuit began. Like I said earlier, like I had 15 years of undercover experience, and I lived this came, this same cover story over and over, repeatedly recycled, case after case, year after year, for 15. Now, at this point in time, going on 17 years. Again, this is this is a regrettable like uh, statement to make about myself, but. But being an undercover agent, being Jay Davis, stopped being what I did for a living, and it started becoming who I was. And that's, that's very unhealthy, and that's very dangerous. Yep. Um, and, and, and I see it now. I didn't see it at the time. One of the most telling examples of that is 
I had been away from home for an extended period of time on this case. And I came home and I was in Jaybird Davis role. I, I was I was gangster. And my wife told me, you cannot be gone and then show up at this house and treat me and our kids like we are your suspects on the street. And in my self-defense, I was like, I can't turn this on and off. I have to be on. People that treat undercover work like a hobby or like a part-time job end up dead. I'm not a light switch. I can't flip this on and off. And then her response was, when you come to this house, you better install a dimmer switch and dial that attitude down. And if you can't, don't come back. And that was my permission slip to go all in on the other side. Wow. Uh, oh. It's, it's terrible because it's almost at the expense of the people you really love. But that's how consuming these roles can be. Well, you said it. You said a phrase. I, I don't even have to look at my notes. You said you inflicted a lot of battle damage on your family. You know, I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you a story that's, uh, again, like so many of my stories are humiliating stories. And it's sometimes it's difficult to share these with, not, not with you guys, because you guys get it, but there's an audience out there that doesn't know me, that I'll never meet, that I'll never know. And, and to tell uh, stories that are, that are humiliating is that there, I have some trepidation in that. Um, but if I don't answer your questions with transparency and honesty, then everything that I say comes under question. Mm -hmm. So my son, who was a young boy at the time, between eight and 10 years old during this window of time, he would, um, he would give me a rock from the yard every time I came home. Mm -hmm. I'd come home. Uh, my son, Jack, would run out, Dad, don't leave yet. And he'd hand me a rock. And over years, I had accumulated these good luck charms from this little boy. Um, and I kept one with me at all times. I always had one of Jackie's rocks in my pocket. I had them in my saddlebags of my motorcycle. I had them in my undercover car, my undercover house. I started handing them out to partners on the task force. And I was saying, all this violence, all this death, all these murders that are spinning around us, we're in this tornado of hatred. And there's something about the blessing on these good luck charms that Jackie's given me. Like, please, I was begging my task force partners to keep one of these rocks with you because I don't want anything bad to happen to anybody. So right before this Mongol murder, it's like the last big event in the case. And I'm getting ready to leave the house. And just as he had routinely done for years before, Jackie comes running up, dad, don't leave yet. And he gives me a rock and it was shaped like a heart. And he said, dad, I got a, I got a rock. I've been saving this one for you. It's special. It's shaped like a heart. So I'm a 40 plus year old father who's trying to comfort my 10 year old son. And I said, dude, I said, all these good luck charms, man, they worked. I'm almost done. And when I finish this, I'm going to do all those things with you that we should have done. We're going to play catch and we're going to go swimming and we're going to go to the movies and we're going to read books and we're going to wrestle and all those things that I haven't been doing with you, I'm going to start doing. And it's all thanks to your good luck charms. And this little boy standing on my driveway and with no shirt, no shoes, no shoes, tears are running down his cheeks. And he said, dad. Those aren't good luck charms, and they were just for you. You should have never given them to anybody else. And I was like, I'm looking at my son, and I, <clears throat> I couldn't process where he was at. And he's like, those were for you to put in your pocket. And every time you thought someone was going to hurt you, you could put your hand in there and touch it. And that was like me being there to help you fight them. 
And I realized at that point what I had done to my family, what I had done to my son. And it was too late. I couldn't turn back. I had to see this through to the end. Like my family didn't sign on for this. I had forced it on them and I had forced it down their throat. And I was so humiliated and, and disappointed in myself that I had done that. But there was no turning back. I had to finish it. You know, it's, <clears throat> Murph will tell you, I'm usually not at a loss for words, but man, just, just to see the raw emotion and you folks can't see it. We can't cause we see each other on video in case you're wondering, are, are these emotions real? Yeah. These emotions are real, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, I can tell it's painful for you to do this. Um, but you know what, but you have such a fantastic story and the fact that you're willing to talk about it. This is what, this is why people want to hear your story. This is why I yeah. think we love doing this because it's not just about, well, let's talk about the Rock'em Sock'em, which by the way, we're two guys' names in the gang, but it's not Rock'em Sock'em. We're just not going to talk about action all the time. There is a huge story. I will guarantee you. In fact, I know by reading the book, stories like this, some of the other stuff, it's not in the book. You don't get this unless you get, unless right. we talk to you like this. Well, I'll tell right. you what, as, as your guest, if I don't tell if I don't answer questions and, and communicate with you guys and your audience transparently and with honesty, um, like, like I could sit here and just tell glory stories and success mm -hmm. stories and I love me stories and pat myself on the back, but that wasn't how it was. Man, I made mistakes and I failed and I did things wrong and I have regrets. And to, to make this story true, like I have to tell the dark and dirty side of it as well as the successes. There's things I'm very proud of. There's things I'm very ashamed of. They all go in the same story. Right. And you know what? That's, I think that's true with most of the heroes we bring on our show. You know, and that's one thing we try to portray. And, and so for our listeners to know, we talked to Jay Bird about this before. We asked him about, you know, is there anything you don't want to talk about, Kim? We talk about your family. And he was open right off the bat. You know, no hesitation whatsoever. Absolutely. Because we've all been through it. We, we have our priorities screwed up. Where our priorities should be, in my opinion, our priorities should be God, family, and the job. But what we do is we reverse those every time. We put the job first, and maybe the family comes second, and then maybe God comes somewhere along the way when we get in trouble and need help. When I, when I published No Angel and I asked my wife, I'm like, what do you think of the book? She's like, uh, what, what do you mean what I think of it? I said, what do you think of it? She's like, I didn't read it. And I'm like, why, did, why didn't you read it, man? She's like, I didn't need to read it. I lived it. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, right. I was there first person. Well, let's, let's cycle back then. Huh, another motorcycle term. Let's cycle back, though. But let's, let's talk about now this Mongol murder, how you staged it. Because you, your tradecraft on this was excellent. It was excellent for a couple of reasons. Number one, you were humble enough to say, I don't know how to stage a murder. I'm not a homicide detective. I've never worked this stuff. So how did the opportunity come up to finally do this? Because I know, like you say, you're coming towards the end of the investigation. And this is kind of, I don't want to say an ace in the hole, but this is like, this is a huge thing that you can pull that is going to, you know, help, obviously help the needs of the investigation. How does this come up? So how does the opportunity now to use this piece of information that you probably got, what, 18 months ago? Well, to back up just a little bit, like I do not like dead bodies. Um, it's not my thing. And, and in the job that I did for so many years, I saw dead bodies. Um, I was never comfortable around it, um, around dead bodies. I don't, I don't even like going to funerals where, where a, a mortician has, has uh, prepared a body. I don't like being around dead bodies. Um, 
uh, one of the first dead bodies I saw on the job, and and Steve uh, can relate to this like probably dozens of times uh, in in his own experience, is that uh, I was at a homicide scene and uh, they popped the top off a 55 gallon barrel steel drum with a body inside that had been dosed with with uh, acid and cooked in the sun, and um, mm. like the 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 sight and the smell of that. Um, is like forever burned into my senses, right? I like it's uh, it's not my thing, right? Now, homicide detectives who do that for a living, um, they see it all the time, and it be and it, it it's very it, clinical to them. They look at it, and it's just they can put it on one side of the brain and say, "What are the facts about this?" They look at the gallon, they look at the drum. Well, what's the who made it? You know, what color is it? You know, they they're just very factual based, but it's I'm what they do. Yeah. been amazed by that it, like it, like an equation uh to that uh, is people that work uh like sex trafficking crimes and and child abuse crimes like like I hear those stories and I immediately want to go get a rifle and save and the taxpayers that. a lot of money I'll, and, I'll help I'll they, save you a lot of money they see it so much it's it's a case it's an investigation and um Man, man, bless their heart for the people that do those jobs because I couldn't, I couldn't Absolutely. do that. Well, that's but, episode 28 with Trisha Cannon, Georgia Bureau of Investigation. She worked a three-year sex trafficking case on a girl who was trafficked through Backpage. You know, and it's just, I'm same way with you, child pornography cases, stuff like that. It's like, I, just leave, give me, put me in a room for five minutes. I'll save the taxpayers a lot of money. No need for a trial. And there will never be an appeal. But, you know, that's- I don't know how those people work those I don't kind know. of cases. and 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 maintain any type of emotional stability mm -hmm. and for any length of time. I don't know how they do it. Bless their heart, man, that there's, bless their heart that there's people out there that do that, that are very good at it and that are passionate about it because because they do it, I didn't have to. And these same people are saying the same thing about you, Jay. They're going, they could not do what you do. And, you know, exactly and they're right. I don't understand how the hell you did what you did. You know, I mean, we're brothers. We're all brothers here. And, you know, we know what's involved with it. I, that's something I could never do. Well, I sucked at working undercover. I was like, I was the, I was the worst undercover because I looked too much like a cop. You talk about having all the tells and the look. I played a banker one time, showed a flash roll. That was it. That was the extent of my undercover work. It's like, nah, I'm not designed for this. But anyway, back to our regularly scheduled podcast with you. Let's talk about the murder now. So how did you start? What were the conditions that arose for you to be able to use this uh, information in your hip pocket? Well, you know, like I said earlier, our case is winding down. Um, we'd, we'd salvaged the compromised, uh, the compromise to our cover and we had moved forward. We, we had stacks of defendants and, and we had stacks of, of, uh, predicate acts for our RICO case, for our racketeering case. The agency was losing patience. As you guys know, uh, supervisors and bosses, they want arrests and convictions, extended long-term yep. case. There's a reason why people say, why are you making a federal case out of this? Well, they're make a, the, the, the analogy is because federal cases take a long time and, and they're, they're extended and they're not quick um, and they're complex. And so kind of everybody was running out of patience. And to be quite honest with you, I was like running out of gas too. I would have never admitted it to myself, but I was mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically drained um, from running with these guys day after day, 18, 20 hours a day. There was days... And 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 I and I do have no shame in saying this. There was there was days we'd finish, and I would boo-hoo cry myself to sleep in my undercover house because I was so exhausted. I'd get a couple hours sleep, charge my battery, and come back and go the next day. 
um, and boohoo myself to sleep that night, feeling sorry for myself, feeling pathetic, feeling like I'm not like, where am I doing? Like, where are my family? Where are my kids? No one loves me. No one cares about me. Um, and then try again the next day. So we're at the end of the case. And I talked about how I had started making personal selfish decisions that weren't necessarily in line with the investigative uh, direction or mission. I wanted to get my patch. I wanted to get that Hells Angels membership. I wanted it for me selfishly. I didn't need to get a Hells Angels patch to make this case. It didn't make it one bit better. It didn't make it one bit stronger. The evidence and everything else that, that went along with it was in place. But I was determined personally, selfishly, to make one last ditch play to get inside these guys and formalize it. And so hey, Jay, I, at that point, real quick, how long had you had to extricate yourself from solo angels and um, start uh, prospecting with hells? How long of a time were you it was involved probably in that? a year and a year? There was probably a year as a solo okay. angels and a year as a hell's angels prospect. And how far are you into it as the Hell's Angel prospect when this goes on? Yeah, we're we're getting we're getting close to the end. And and all the indications are from management and the executives, like, hey, you guys need to wrap this up. You guys need to wind this thing down, man. We're getting ready to pull the plug on it. There's gonna be no more money left. There's gonna be no more time left. Start planning your arrests and your and your uh and your takedown. And based but on I, what you just said a while ago about wanting that patch, just tell our listeners how many undercover law enforcement officers had ever been patched by the Hells Angels? Well, you know, to my knowledge, none had been. Um, right. I, I don't know that I can verify that or, or, or put my hand on a Bible and say that. At least like common knowledge within the law enforcement community is that like all the other major biker gangs had at some point or other been infiltrated. The Hells Angels had not. And the Hells Angels took a great sense of pride in that, that no one had ever got inside their wire. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason was was their own rules and protocols you had to prospect with the hell's angels for a minimum mandatory of one year before you were even eligible to be considered to be to be voted for membership mm -hmm. other gangs you know 60 90 120 days um prospecting you could get your patch with the hell's angels part of the way they insulated themselves was that they extended the prospecting time so long, they knew that a cop couldn't ride the train that long. They could wait you out. They could wait you out. They they were smart. They they know what they're doing. Um, so we're coming to the end. I still hadn't had a patch. I was a prospect, and I reached way back into that information. That what do you what am I supposed to do if I see a Mongol? It's your job to kill him. So it was time to make the play, and I had thought this through for years after first hearing that. So I went to the Hells Angels and I said, look, you guys know I'm a debt collector. You guys know I'm a gun runner. Um, I run guns into Mexico. Um, you guys know I have associations in Mexico through the Solo Angels, through my old Solo Angels connects. I got people down there. Word is there's a Mongol down there running his mouth and he's talking shit on the Hells Angels. He's talking about how he kicked our ass at freaking Laughlin, how he shot people up and killed people, how he's going to start running Mexican meth right up the Hells Angels ass into Arizona, right through Nogales, right up into Phoenix, right into Sonny Barger's backyard. And there's not a fucking thing we can do about it. And I said, I love you guys. I want to be with you. And this is how I'm going to show you. I want to go down there and kill that guy. 
their instant reaction was not like, whoa, hey, mate, wait a minute, man, pump the brakes. No one jerked my leash. It was like, right on, dude. That's fucking what we're talking about. Here's the gun to do it. They gave me a gun. Here's how I want you to do it. Pop them in the eye so there's no blowout. Make sure this gun stays in Mexico. Bury it. Take it apart. Dissemble it. This can never be seen again. And a pat on the back and a handshake and a hug and good luck. And so Damn. the plan was the, the plan was rolling and the hierarchy was in support of it. Who was uh, the who was the did they know the Mongol that you were talking about? I left that obscure. I did not identify who it was. I just said a Mongol in Mexico. I took Is this the bad plan. Bob you're talking to, or who who are you telling them? I was to? talking to uh, to uh, uh, a Hell's Angels member that I had befriended. I had become a prospect in the Skull Valley Charter, which was north of Phoenix, and I was talking to a pretty aggressive, very aggressive, uh, uh, violent Hell's Angel named George Walters. He went by the name of Joby, mm-hmm. and Joby was my main uh, my main point of contact in this murder plan. Skull, Skull Valley also was a new chapter, right? Was that one that Smitty had uh, wanted to open up and wanted you to be a part of, or am I thinking of something different? Skull Valley was a, a small charter, a small Hells Angels charter out uh, up north and uh, west of Phoenix outside a town called Prescott, Arizona. Um, most people are familiar uh, in, with that area of Sedona, the Red Rocks of Sedona. It's, mm-hmm. it's right outside. The, the Skull Valley chapter was right outside of Sedona. Um, very picturesque, very beautiful area. Um, was it an established chapter? Or was it a new one that was stood up? It was established, that but was- it was very small. Um, and, and the reason why they sent me and my partners to prospect at Skull Valley was to pump up the Skull Valley's charters membership numbers. They, they needed bodies in Skull Valley. This plan was presented. It was enthusiastically accepted by the Hells Angels. And so I went to the task force and said, look, we got a chance to, uh, to, to make the next step here and to finish things, this thing off the right way. And there was like huge reluctance to the plan for obvious reasons. Slats even said to me, he goes, have you thought through uh, the dominoes that are going to fall if you present that you killed a Mongol? Like what the reaction is going to be, what the reaction is going to be from the Mongols, what the reaction is going to be into the Hells Angels. Like you are going to like throw gas on this on this forest fire of a rivalry that's already in existence. I'll be honest with you, man. I did not care. Yes, did I think about it? I didn't care. Like, I didn't care if it reignited the gang war. Is that a statement that's flattering of a law enforcement officer? It absolutely isn't. I was making selfish decisions. Um, but I knew, I, I, knew, I knew it would advance our case. I knew it was a tactical decision. But I, like, I was ignoring... The, the, the red flags. I was ignoring the stop signs. Uh, we decided, you know, I told them that I was going to kill a Mongol in Mexico. The reality of it is, is, is we drove uh, outside the desert of Phoenix. Um, we took a member of our task force. We put a Mongol uh, gang vest on this task force member that had been seized in another investigation. Um, Before you get into that detail, though, Set the stage, though, because there, you were talking about working with a homicide detective. Tell us about the work you did so that you would understand how to stage a homicide. Because like you said, having not worked those or investigated those, it's got to be legit. It's got it's to pass the sniff test. Absolutely. So, you know, we're, we're, we're setting up this, this, this Mongol murder scenario. We go out, we take our victim, we dress him up, we duct tape him at his hands and his feet. Uh, we dig a shallow grave, we drag him into the grave. 
And now, like I said earlier, like I, I, I was not a fan of dead bodies and I didn't have a whole lot of experience like on, a, on, a, on death scenes or homicide scenes. We recruited a Phoenix Police Department homicide detective to come out and help us build the, the crime scene and make it look authentic. Um, and he used uh, cow blood and cow parts from a butcher shop. And, and I told him the, the story that I was going to tell. And I said, I need you to make this crime scene fit my story. During my hang around and prospecting phase, I always carried a baseball bat with me. I had a baseball bat with me. I had one strapped to my motorcycle and I told the homicide detective, the story I'm gonna present to these guys is that I found this guy in a tavern. I smacked him in the head with my baseball bat, knocked him out, busted his head open, stuffed him in the trunk of a car, drove him out to the desert, duct taped him up, buried him in a shallow grave, shot him with the gun that Joby gave me, and then took some pictures of it. So this homicide detective builds this crime scene, which has a lot of blood around the head and, and some brains oozing out of the skull, which were built from these uh, cow parts that were obtained from a butcher shop. And it, it wasn't like, the, it, it wasn't as nasty as I thought it should be. Or, or it was supposed to be. You were thinking of too much of the movies, right? There's going to be body parts everywhere and blood spattering, and yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't this crazy, wicked uh, butchering that I expected. And I said, "Dude, are you sure?" And he's like, "Do you know what you're doing, or do I know what I'm doing?" And I'm like, "Dude, <laughs> man, that, that's why we brought you here, dude. I trust you. You know." One of the most important parts, though, I think you're probably going to get to it, right? But if you're going to kill a Mongol, there's one thing a Mongol has that proves he was a Mongol. We had him dressed in a Mongol vest and we put him face down in this shallow grave. And so there's blood splatters on the vest and we take pictures of this crime scene and we, and we, 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 we kept evidence of our fabricated murder. Um, we cut the, the vest off the back of our victim with the blood stains on it. We took Polaroid pictures of the, of the murder scene. And just so and, folks know, when you say this, that was a cut. That actually came from a real case. This was seized. For, I mean, it was a real Mongol, what they call cut, right, from a real case. That's what made this so authentic. Prior to um, our Hells Angels investigation, another ATF agent in Los Angeles by the name of Billy Queen had infiltrated the Mongols. Um, he wrote a book about it called Under and Alone, a really great book about his adventure infiltrating the Mongols. But ATF had in its possession... Mongols vests that had been seized in Billy Queen's under and alone investigation. Um, so we dressed our victim up, you know, like I said, uh, made, made it look like, he, like this scenario had been created, took pictures of it. The homicide detective, before we put those pictures in play, took them to his weekly homicide detective meeting, spread them out in front of his homicide detective peers and said, without letting the cat out of the bag, do any of you guys have a John Doe in the desert? Like I caught this case and I really don't have much information. I don't have many leads on it. So all these homicide detectives, these experienced homicide detectives were looking over these pictures. And once he was convinced that those detectives believed that the pictures were authentic, then he let them off the hook. He said, hey, time out, guys. I had to run a little game on you here. This is actually a fabricated, faked homicide that some undercover agents are going to use to put in play with some suspects. I had to test drive these in front of you first to make sure that they were credible and authentic before we put these, you know, in the hands of our suspects. So 
we had, we had, you know, we had double checked that. Um, so I took the, the, the evidence of the murder, put it in a FedEx box, addressed it from uh, an address in Mexico and sent it to my undercover house. I called the Hells Angels and said, hey, you know what? My business is done. Like we need to meet. And uh, four Hells Angels show up at my at my undercover trailer that was in Skull Valley. And I hand them a FedEx box. And they're looking at me like, what's this? I'm like, open it. Go check it out. Well, one of the Hells Angels, the guy that gave me the gun, Joby, takes the box and he turns his back to the group of us and he starts peeling open the FedEx box. And now, is your trailer in. wired for uh, audio and sound? I mean, everything, sound and video? Okay. It is. It is. This is all being recorded. Um, and he goes to the box and he pulls some stuff out and he comes to the Mongol vest and he's got his back to everybody. And Joby says, whoa. And then one of the Hells Angels says, well, what is it? And he turns around and he's like, it's a Mongol cut and there's blood dripping down it. And then he, they start passing it around and then they start looking at the pictures and they start talking about it. Like, Hey, how'd you do it? Like, did you hit him here? And it looks like the, like the back of his head was blown out. And they're like completely fascinated by this murder. Um, now prior to the deliver the, the delivery of the, of the fabricated murder, I told my partner, uh, uh, an, uh, an officer named Bill Long, who went by the name of Timmy in the case, he was with me when we delivered this. And so we were bringing these, these hell's angels into our trailer to, to show them that we had committed a murder. And like, we didn't know what the reaction was going to be. We didn't know if it would be embraced or if they were going to feel like compromised because now they had become an accomplice. We had made them accomplices in a murder. And I told Timmy, I said, dude, no matter what happens here tonight, whatever, whatever goes down, do not let any of these dudes get behind you. Don't you make sure that you keep your, uh, your field of view with everybody in front of you in case this breaks bad. Cause I, I was I, like, I didn't know what the reaction was going to be. And there's like this pause and, and the, the president of the skull Valley char charter said, well, Jay bird, uh, you know, what we got to do now. And I was like, Ooh, this is, this isn't going the way I wanted to. I was thinking he was going to like, we got to eliminate you guys. Um, and then from behind me, a hell's angel puts his vest on my shoulders. He said, you took care of business TCB. Welcome to the hell's angels. You're a hell's angel now. And it was hugs and kisses and celebration. And then we, we, we left my trailer. We, we took all this evidence to the skull Valley clubhouse and they burned all the pictures in a bonfire. They cut the Mongol vest into tiny little one inch swatches and burned them one at a time. Um, destroying all the evidence. Um, and, and so, you know, I mean, they were smart. They were getting rid of the evidence of the murder. Um, they're like, when we delivered the, 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 the murder evidence, there was a million questions, which we'd all rehearsed and we'd gone through on our gauntlet that we talked about earlier. Um, what if they asked this, what if they asked that, what are you going to say to this? What are you going to say to that? Um, it's impossible to cover every possible scenario but we'd done a pretty good job and we sold the, we sold the murder convincingly to murderers that we had killed on behalf of the, on behalf of the gang. Let's talk about that because this is something that to this day, 
we found out from talking to Steve and you in the pre-call, Hells Angels denies that you ever became a patch member, but let's talk about when they put that jacket on the back of you or the, the cut on the back of you. It still would require a vote by somebody, right? But the fact that the president of Skull Valley, um, Joby, right, you said? The, the actual president of Skull Valley was a guy named Teddy Toth. Okay, His Teddy. vice president was a guy named uh, Bobby Reinstra. Bobby Reinstra was my club dad. Bobby Reinstra was my sponsor into the gang. Joby, who gave me the gun, was the sergeant at arms. And then there was another member, a fourth full patch member named Rudy Jaime, who was like our little drug dealer thug in Skull Valley. All four of them were there. So where would the vote have to take place and who would vote on it to make you a full patch now? So they they put the patch on on me and Timmy and they're like welcome to the gang you guys are hell's angels now. They said like now we need uh we need an international vote. Like you guys are not with you guys are still outside that one year prospecting period. Like we need to get a vote to do this because we can't uh circumvent the 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 policies and protocols of the hell's angels. We're going to get you in, but we got to get a vote. There was a Hells Angels world run scheduled for uh, a short time into the future in Laconia, New Hampshire. And I was, me and Timmy were both told, you're going to escort Sonny Barger as bodyguards to Laconia and we're going to take the vote. And Joby said, don't worry about this. I'm going to lobby for this. I'm going to go around to all the West Coast charters. I'm going to make sure that they know exactly what happened. Like this is a no brainer. But once we had delivered the, the fabricated murder, um, it was, it was not only enough for the case, it was too much for ATF's management. It was too much for ATX executives. We had in their eyes, we had gone too far. Um, we had overplayed our hand and they were like, you know what? You're done. Like we're closing this thing down. We don't need anymore. We got all the defendants we need. We've got all the predicate acts for a Rico. We've got all the supporting charges. Um, and so in essence, what I th- believed was advancing the case and was going to continue the case and was going to put us in a position to really do the most damage was actually brought about the official end of the case. My plan backfired. Well, yeah, you might look at it that way. We might say, hey, still at the end of the day, we'll we'll find out the resolution of it. You did a lot of good, but. So Morgan, you know when the Hells Angels say, hey, look, you know what? He was never a Hells Angel. He was never sanctioned. He would, right. He never received a vote. They are 100% correct. They're, they're, there's no lie in that. They ne- We never got to the point where they could vote on whether we were officially sanctioned worldwide as Hells Angels members. But in that trailer with the four uh, members of the Skull Valley hierarchy leadership saying you're Hell's Angels now, um, and 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 you're. But you're also going to be Sonny Barger's uh, bodyguards. And for the folks that might not quite know who Sonny is, Sonny, uh, give us a, just a quick bio of Sonny Barger. Sonny Barger is uh, the iconic leader of the Hell's Angels. From you know he he he, he didn't invent the Hell's Angels. Uh, but he was from the late 50s was the figurehead and the most worldwide renowned iconic biker on the planet doesn't matter what gang who you are everybody and anybody knows who Sonny Barger is um and he he's responsible for 
the internationalization of the Hells Angels, for the expansion of the Hells Angels, that they be, they've become, as we said earlier, a, a worldwide international crime syndicate. That is due to the leadership and foresight uh, of Sonny Barger. So you might say that uh, Sonny Barger is to Hells Angels what Steve Jobs was to like Apple and technology, just took him to a whole new level. I've said many times that uh, if Sonny Barger had used his powers and skills and charm and charisma for good, he would be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. But the point I'm making there is they can say all they want, but the point about it is if they did not have the utmost trust and if it was not a shoe in that you were going to be voted in, they would not let you within a state, you know, in the same state as Sonny Barger, much less writing and accompanying him to Laconia, right? If they didn't believe it, if they didn't believe us, or if they felt like they were tricked, it would have ended right in that trailer. Yeah, a couple shots, that would be the end of it. And uh, as we've established already, you were working without a cover team, so we may not have found you for a while. Well, um, I would have ended up Forever. buried in, like in a shallow grave, duct taped. Uh, they, you, know you already told them how to do it because you showed them the pictures. Well, you know what? And I understand their reaction. Uh, no, you know what? No one likes to be tricked. No one likes to be humiliated. No one likes to be betrayed. Anybody that's ever suffered a betrayal, even if it's just, you know, you're in high school and your and your girlfriend decides that like she's gonna go out with somebody else. No one likes how that feels to to be tricked. Um, and from ground zero, over the course of two years, we had built trust. And then the trust turned into loyalty. In some cases, the loyalty turned into love. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind um, that, and, and I was even told this by members of the Hells Angels when they found out who I really was, I would have stepped in front of a bullet for you. Um, there, was a, there was a Hells Angel who was reluctant to, uh, to cooperate and uh, and I came into an interview room and said, "Dude, man, I'm I'm sorry." And I like I I felt bad. I like I felt like like I was the betrayer. And I and I didn't I didn't have some weird sense of satisfaction in that. Like I had a part in like damaging this person's life. Like they they did it to themselves. I was present for things that brought them to that point and reported those things. But I didn't feel good about it. I never celebrated or like. Ever at any point in my career, I never uh, mocked someone in handcuffs. Like like being in handcuffs is a humiliating experience. You, like oftentimes we're meeting people and spending time with them on the very worst day of their day life. of their life. Hey, and this Jake, guy told me, he said, "You know what? When you just told me you're an ATF agent, that's the first true words you've ever spoken to me in two years." Okay, well, Jay, let me ask you about that. How much of that guilt did you feel because you were more Jay Davis than Jay Dobbins? Had you remained more Jay Dobbins than Jay Davis, would you have still felt the same way when you made the arrests? You know, I, I, from my perspective, you know, when you spend an extended amount of time with people, th these guys, like I lived with these guys. I, I broke bread with them. They slept at my house. I slept at their house. I spent holidays with them. I held their babies. Um, um, I, I got to know their families. You see sides of their life, the criminal sides of their life that are despicable and that, and that you have no tolerance for. But you also see aspects to their life where they're human and they're human beings and, and they're people. And, and they've, they're, they're in the situation they're in because of the choices they've made and the circumstances they've created for them. So 
I don't think even in an undercover role, regardless of how immersed you get in it, you can ever eliminate, you can't undercover out the human factor. Like you, you grow feelings for people. You grow affection for people. Um, like, I, like I, I didn't take any sense of satisfaction in like, in, in being a guy who was train wrecking their life. I didn't celebrate that. It was, I had a job to do. I did it the best I could. My job was to get next to these people, learn of their crimes and report back out to case agents and prosecutors and juries and judges. My job wasn't to what wasn't to wreck anybody. My job was to investigate. And I just did it the best I could. You know, it reminds me, we had Lou on, Lou Velozzi, you know, your buddy too on for episode four. And one of the toughest things he said, he didn't want to be present at a lot of these things because to your point, you work with these folks. But Steve, if you remember too, the one I remember was talking about when they had that storefront set up and they had that guy working in there that was dealing crack, I think it was, but he was such a good guy. Mm -hmm. He was working really hard for him. And then they had to arrest him. Lou, I mean, I remember Lou saying, man, that just tore him up. He did not want to be there for that because it hurt him so much to see this guy get arrested because he had poured his heart and soul into working it. Even though they were doing bad stuff, he was still a good guy and working hard. And it was just, it, it's not something he wanted to be there for. You know, one of the things I learned is, and, and, and I include myself in this, is that none of us are probably quite as ever good or quite as ever bad as people might think. Yeah, there's a very interesting Chinese thing to bring up here. Have you ever seen the yin and the yang symbol, you know, the black and the white? It's exactly to your point. If you look in there, and this is what I, I didn't realize this till I looked and I was told the story. So if you look in each one, in the white one, there's one spot of black, and in the black one, there's one spot of white, which means in every evil person, there's some good, and in every good person, there's some evil, exactly to your point. And that's what makes this go round like this. I mean, so let's talk about the aftermath. Um, when did they pull the plug in relation to when you were supposed to be going to Laconia with uh, Sonny and the gang? Almost immediately. Um, I mean, literally within days, um, the the doors were being crashed, the flashbangs were going off, the SWAT teams were in play, um, uh, raids were being conducted, arrests were being made. Um, ultimately, I believe we um, uh, indicted and arrested uh, 55 Hells Angels and Associates. 16 of them uh, were on RICO charges. Uh, two of them were on capital murder charges for the for the murder of Cynthia Garcia. Um, they were death penalty candidates. Um, so on the surface, at the conclusion of the investigation, on the surface, um, although I felt like there was still more work to do, I did not want to quit. I did not want to step out. I wanted to take this new role and expand on it. But at that time and place, it was it was considered a successful investigation. What was Slats? Did Slats want it to stop or did he want it to continue? I think Slats was uh, I think Slats was content where we were at, and mm -hmm. and the investigation had skewed so far away from his original plan, for, from his side by side plan to an infiltration plan that uh, he, he had become uncomfortable with the level of risk and danger and violence that the people that were working for him on his task force were like walking into every day. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't think Slats wanted it to end. But I do believe that Slats uh, was feeling a lot of personal liability. And like we were really pressing the envelope. It was like, I think all of us felt like, man, it's only a matter of seconds, minutes, days before something breaks bad for us. 
Yeah, and when it does, just that door on that opens up and then it really goes bad. Hey, I wanted to ask you, though, too, because there's a little bit of an aha here that some folks, if they haven't read the book, which they should, um, we're, we're pimping out your book. We told you we'd pimp you out. You know, we'll <laughs> pimp you out all day long, right? But you got to read the book. But something that there, we said that very few, you were the, basically, you came as close as anybody ever has to becoming voted in fully patched member of the uh, Hells Angels. But there's another thing that's very tough to do with Hells Angels, and that's to flip somebody. And you guys had actually flipped somebody because of the uh, Garcia case. And that was kind of your in on this too, because I, in, I tell you, in all my years, I never knew that a Hells Angel had been ever successfully flipped. Well, and I'll tell you, it, it ultimately... Um was was the downfall of our prosecution. Um, informants, Hell's Angels informants had been created out, out of this case and out of other cases. Um, our case goes to the U.S. Attorney's Office and they're preparing for prosecution. And then they find out that the case actually continued in a, in a more traditional investigation by uh, monitoring informants that were wired informants that were having conversations with defendants and were, and were attending Hells Angels meetings. Slats and, and ATF agents who had recruited and developed these informants had promised them, like, we are not going to compromise you. Like, 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 we need your help and you're working off charges and you're working to help us, but we are not going to compromise you. The attorneys found out about it and then ordered all that information, all that subsequent information from the closing of the undercover operation that continued forward, all of that to be disclosed and those informants to be disclosed. And it turned into an internal war on the good guy's side, the prosecutors versus the case agencies versus DOJ versus ATF on how the case was going to be presented. And um, this in, these internal arguments ultimately sank what could have been a pretty glorious prosecution into one that became average. Hmm. What do you, what do you mean? What, what happened, what should have happened versus what did happen? Well, um, in this, in this dispute over disclosure of, of, of evidence, uh, members of the U S attorney's office accused Joe Slatella of withholding evidence from them. Uh, Joe then accused them of inappropriate investigative techniques and orders and, and, uh, and instructions. And when you have both of the main players on the good guy's side, like documenting that they, that each side feels the other is conducting themselves in an unethical way. That's a heyday for really the defense to take yeah. that case into a courtroom. Uh, the defense attorneys are going to eat that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner all day long. And and what was sad and 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 is um, like I still have uh, I'm not resentful, but I still have some some hard feelings for is that when that case blew up and the defense attorneys like charges started being reduced and charges started being re, uh, 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 given up, dismissed, yeah, dismissed. Um, from the perspective of a, of a defense attorney, knowing that this was an undercover driven case, their, their, their assumptions were logical, which was, there's gotta be something bad about these undercover guys. Why would they be, why would they spend all this money and all this time and start dismissing charges and reducing charges? They didn't know the internal mechanics of why that was taking place, but their assumption as to why was a logical one. And when 
the, the allegation or insinuation that somehow this case crashed behind unethical conduct of the undercover agents, that was not true. That case is every bit as prosecutable today and winnable today based on uh, testimony, agent testimony, evidence, uh, thousands of hours of recorded audio and video conversations. Like that, that case could be taken, in, taken into a courtroom today and won. Um, but the fact that the insinuation somehow was laid at the feet of myself and my undercover partners, I, I felt that was very unfair because we did our best. Did we do everything right? No, we didn't. Were we perfect every day? Far from it. Um, but, uh, but that, that, that wasn't our responsibility that case crashed. Um, but publicly we were left holding the bag for it. Yeah, because nobody ever blames the like the attorneys and stuff. They always go back and they want to blame the cops. It's like, hey, we didn't write the laws. We don't write the judicial rules, you know. And that that was a struggle we had too. Is that why are you making this deal? Why are you doing this? We got to. I mean, this is to your point. When you've got video and audio, when you've got a signed confession, you've got a rights waiver that's signed. You've got everything by the book. You got ten people as witnesses, and they want to reduce charges. You're going, but then who do they blame? Well, the police let this guy go. No, the police didn't let this guy go. Right. I mean, but the, that distinction is lost on most people. The courts let him go. The attorneys made a deal. Cops don't make deals. We're, we're not people, authorized to come in and make deals. The people on the good side, the good guys side of this situation, they knew exactly what happened and how it happened. Um, and like no one was willing to come to our defense of the undercover team. No one was willing to step up for us. They were content to let us hold the blame for the failed prosecution or the reduced prosecution. Um, and so like that, that, that's like, I've gotten over it and I understand like the, the mechanics of how things work, but I just thought that was very unfair. To, Are you to talking me, about the ATF to, brass would not, did they leave you ATF swinging in the wind? DOJ brass. Yeah. Um, they, they all knew how it went down and they were content to just let us hold the bag for the blame and walk away. Was there any indication to you that there could have been, um, payoffs or something to some of the attorneys on the good guys side? You know what I like? I, I don't think so. I, I don't think there was anything that was like criminal. Um, I don't even know that there was anything unethical. I think both sides were right, and I think both sides were wrong. I think the attorneys wanted every single piece of anything that touched this case for disclosure. I think the ATF case agents were like, we we don't have to disclose everything. To make this case, we can build the case on what we got. There's more cases to be built behind this if you continue to let us run. Um, their failure and, and the inability to cooperate on both sides of that is what ultimately did it in. But like I said, I, I think both sides were justified in their position and both sides were wrong in their position and they couldn't find common ground. Mm. Yeah, well, the reason I kind of asked about that is this sets the stage for something where you guys got sideways too on another issue because that is your next book. And, and tell give everybody just a quick primer on this next book that you wrote and tell us when it came out. And then because this sets the stage for what I would just call retribution. Yeah, I, I wrote a follow-up book to No Angel called Catching Hell, uh, a true story of abandonment and betrayal. And that um, that title and that subtitle, like... For anybody that reads it, I, th I think we'll have understanding of my meaning. Catching hell from, from catching footballs as a young man to catching hell as an agent to catching hell in the aftermath of the Hells Angels investigation. Uh, a true story of abandon abandonment and betrayal, the subtitle. 
Um, I was ultimately abandoned and betrayed by my agency that I work for, but it actually goes deeper than that. Um, I think people that read it will see some very personal chapters in there. And um, I'm very open and uh, transparent and honest over the fact that during this process, I had abandoned and betrayed my family. So it wasn't necessarily accusatory. That title wasn't accusatory at, at one person or one or an agency. I was also accusing myself of abandonment and betrayal. Um, I, I had put um, pretty much everything that had to do with me in front of my family. And I found in this abandonment and betrayal theme that the people that loved me the most, the people that cared about me the most, the people that were my biggest fans were the ones that I treated the shittiest. And that was my family. Unfortunately, they do catch, they catch hell because of the jobs we do. Walk us through that because you kind of got sidelined. Uh, was that a direct result of the Hells Angels case or was there something else that came up because you got moved out of your UC role into what we talked about being a, a NIBIN coordinator in the National uh, Integrated Ballistics Information Network, which, you know, ATF, obviously the experts on uh, ballistics and stuff, that's a great thing, but that's kind of like being moved from the first string to the practice squad. Well, I'll tell you what happened is is when the uh, the case closed and, and moved forward in prosecution during the discovery process, my true identity was revealed. Um, and that's that's not unexpected. That's part of the court system in the United States. That's what makes like living here and being a citizen of this country beautiful is that we have the ability, the, the, the constitutional uh, right to face our accusers. Mm -hmm. So so they had the right to know that Jay Davis was actually ATF Special Agent Jay Dobbins. When my true identity was was exposed, we began to get flooded with death and violence threats, me and my family. Uh, there were murder contracts placed on me. Uh, there was a written threat to uh, kidnap and gang rape my wife. There were spoken threats and documented threats to kidnap my kids. Um, uh, Jay, was your, was your UC identity exposed through the normal court process or did it get leaked prior to that? No, it was it was an originally exposed. My true identity was originally exposed just through normal court discovery. Um, you know, my name was on reports. Uh, there was there wasn't when when we turn our over our reports to the defense team. There's no redactions in there. They can see what we did and who did it and what the names of the agents and and officers were. Um, but um, again, you were getting back threats. To, yeah, yeah. Back to that abandonment, betrayal, man. That's man. That's that's a that that stings. Um, and you can't expect a tiger to change his stripes. The Hells Angels are who they are. And just because they found out that they got tricked or deceived by an agent doesn't mean that they're going to stop being who they are. Um, these threats start coming in and ATF like wouldn't react to them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't follow up on them. They wouldn't chase them. Isn't um, there a, well, you were talking about policy and procedure earlier. Isn't there a policy and procedure to when there is a credible threat on an agent's life that they've got to take some action like move you out, protect you, you know, do something? Well, you would think, and and um, and, and there were some steps made. I, I'm not going to like entirely point like this 100% uh, negative finger at ATF. They took some steps. I was relocated, um, but they 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 were putting a band aid on the cancer. Um, they moved me from Tucson. Uh, they, they relocated me and my family.
but that but they never addressed the threats. They never they never took steps to deal with the cancer. They just put a Band-Aid on the on the cut. Um, and so the, the the more threats that came in that were unaddressed, they were empowering the mm-hmm. suspects. Mm-hmm. They were saying like, hey, look, we can threaten this guy. We can do all kinds of stuff. No one's going to do anything to us. No one ever came and knocked on my door. They had a letter written from the Hells Angel who murdered Cynthia Garcia. They had intercepted a letter out of the jail that said, we need to kidnap this guy's wife and gang rape her on videotape and make him watch it. Like, see how he likes that. It was mm-hmm. signed by the dude. Like, you would think that the agency would go knock on his jail bars and say, dude, if nothing else, if nothing else, even if you're just uh, like like puffing up for street talk, you can't do this. They never did anything. See, you know, th- th- you, if I saw a letter like that, I mean, it's like, why is it, why aren't people being jacked up? I mean, you may not be able to make a case. But you might be able to get some search warrants, send a message that says, if you're going to do this, you are going to pay a huge price. We're going to be the ones to deliver that to you. I just it, it just amazes me because it goes back to backing up your people. Somebody makes a threat on a cop. People say, well, why do they get special attention? You know why? Because they are the protectors of society, because they do the job nobody else wants to do. And if we can't protect them, then who the hell is going to protect you? So as these as these death and murder uh, death and violence threats stacked up and and kept stacking and stacking with no action. Like I've I filed an internal complaint with ATF. Like you like why is no one investigating these? Why are you not chasing these down? Why are you at not least confronting these people and saying, we know what you're saying, we know what you're doing, we know what you're planning, and it's going to end. Nothing. Um, when I complained. The some ATF executives who like, you know, like had a very retaliatory reputation, then forced all my um, previously concealed personal information into the public domain. My 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 house's address was no longer concealed or protected. It you was got made open doxxed source. by your own agency. They, they ex- um, yeah, they uh, <sighs> they intentionally exposed me. They intentionally forced my personal, previously uh, concealed information. They unmasked me um, and made it open source information. Three months after the unmasking, my house was burned to the ground by arsonists. Confirmed. This is an arson. They had information from informants, from suspects, uh, circum like uh, physical and all kinds of evidence that indicated the various players who had a hand in it. Those same people in ex- ignored real time credible information. Those same managers built a task force designed to frame me as the arsonist of my own house, and thus someone willing to murder his own family by fire. And they went all in. They went all in. They built a task force to frame me. Well, let's put up some exposition on this, though, because some of the people you're talking about are some of the same people who led the infamous Fast and Furious investigation, right? Not only some of them, man for man. So the the same same people who let guns walk across the border that got a border agent killed, um, that resulted in how many deaths in Mexico. These are the same ones trying to set you up and frame you for setting fire to your own house. At the same time that 
they were trying to frame me as the arsonist in my house. Border Patrolman Brian Terry was being murdered in the desert outside of Tucson with one of the over 2,500 guns that these same people allowed to be trafficked knowingly and willingly allowed to be trafficked out of the United States to Chapo and his crew. Mm-mm-mm. So so when they revealed your information, they did away with your box backstopping system completely. The first and only time in the history of ATF that an undercover agent had been intentionally, willfully unmasked was me. You know, I retired in 2013, and I won't go into detail, but DEA still has a backstopping system in place for me. And rightfully so. And you know what? I think one thing that people don't understand is there's no witness security program for us. No. There's no witness security program for agents or officers. Yeah, there's no WITSEC. There's no WITSEC for cops. Only for people who have violated the law or are you know material witnesses in cases. But who's going to protect the people who are protecting the people that are in WITSEC? Right. One of the complaints I made in in trying to argue this position and trying to fight back against this frame job, like this is all taking place in the Phoenix Field Division in Arizona, and I said, Sammy the Bull Gravano murdered 17 people for the for the Gambino crime family. Mm-hmm. He got witness protection for his testimony. He was relocated to Phoenix. While he was in Phoenix as a member of the uh, a witness protection program and under a, a, a new pseudoname and false identity, set up the biggest ecstasy ring in the United States. And you're still protecting that dude, but you won't go chase a death threat against my kids. After an arson. So, so ultimately, this case, it, 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 it leads to a lawsuit, um, years and years of litigation, uh, meetings with DOJ attorneys where they said, they told me to my face, this case is going to go to trial. Um, everything that you're saying is going to be proven true. But guess what? You will never win because we can out-resource you. We have more attorneys than you have. We have more money than you have. So if you win, we'll appeal. And if you and win appeal there, you to death. appeal. And if you win there, we'll appeal. So just understand the fight you're getting into, because even if you win, we'll never allow you to win. And well, that's exactly what happened. We went to trial. We had a three-week trial. Every substantive allegation that I made was true, was proven true from, from the, from, from, ignoring the the death and violence threats to trying to frame me as the arsonist. All of them were were proven true at trial. Well, you know what they call DOJ? It's the world's largest law firm. And that's why, like you say, they can just out-resource you. I mean, but, well, you know, Murph, this reminds me of the episode with uh, Alex and uh, how he got, you know, the San Bernardino County Deputy Alex Collins left for dead by two other cops. I mean, they just left him out there and they got awards for this. And we went totally sideways on this. I'm trying not to, trying to maintain, you know, keep in check, but I'm telling you to throw you under the bus like that after all you did, but it does, it shocks me, but it doesn't shock me that to a man, everybody who was involved in trying to throw you under the bus was involved in one of the worst things that somebody could have pulled, like the Fast and Furious set, like you say, Brian Terry, a U.S. law enforcement officer killed by the same guns that came. And no, who's been held accountable for Fast and Furious to today? The exact same three people who were at the crux of Fast and Furious were also 
the leaders in trying to frame me as the arsonist and not one thing, even after it was all proven true, not one thing happened to him. So when you say the DOJ attorneys, is that the actual DOJ attorneys or is that ATF attorneys? I'm, I'm sorry. Um, that, that, that said, you know, you can, you can win in court, but you'll never beat us. That was, that was DOJ's attorneys. Um, and at the time, um, I was uh, like, man, I was, I was in war mode. Like mm -hmm. I, like I was like, oh yeah, well, we'll see. You don't know who you're dealing with. Um, I naively, uh, didn't understand that, that they weren't lying to me. They were telling me the truth. Mm -hmm. They were not going to let me win. We won in court. We got the opinion from the trial court judge. They appealed it. It went to the circuit court and the circuit court overturned the trial judge on a technicality, basically saying all these things happened. We are not disputing the facts and evidence that were presented at trial, but there's nothing in place that says ATF or an agency has to do what you've challenged them on. There's nothing that says they have to investigate threats. There's nothing that says they have to protect you. You won the case, but you lost. It's the difference between winning the battle and losing the war. I'll tell you what, I still, in spite of what I went through, I still believe in our justice system. It did not treat me uh, the way that I had hoped it would, but if the day ever comes where I stop believing that the truth will win, that the truth will come out, um, man, that's going to be a sad day in my life because mm -hmm. like, even in spite of what I went through, um, and knowing what I know, this is what I, what I ultimately believe. The truth is the truth. And the truth is the same today as it will be a million years from today. Yep. The truth doesn't change. Yeah. Facts are a stubborn thing. You know, as Winston Churchill said one time there, they, they stay there forever. Um, what is well, I'll tell you this too, like with, with yeah. all this, like, like at, on the back end of this, like I do not live my life bitter. I'm not pissed off. I'm not resentful. I love ATF. I love the men and women with their boots on the ground. Um, I love the great supervisors I work for. I love what the agency stands for. I love DOJ and I love the mission of what we cumulatively and collectively try to accomplish. Um, I don't burn for anybody. The people that intended to harm me, I'm, I'm not waiting for theirs to for them to get theirs. I'm not waiting for the karma gods to show up, um, because if I do that, if I continue to live my life with resentment and anger, um, they've won. Hmm. They've won. Um, I don't wish any ill will towards anybody. I'm just like moving forward and and uh, and trying to have a good positive attitude towards everything I touch. Well, before we get into your posting, let me leave you with just this Churchill quote, then we want to find out what you're working on. But it goes back to the truth, and I had to look it up to make sure I got it right. It says, truth is incontrovertible. Ignorance may deride it. Panic may resent it. Malice may destroy it. But there it is. And for you, the truth will always be there because there it is. Um, uh, you know, I— I wish there was an easy way to say, man, I wish wish it was different. You know, wishes, you know, if you had wishes in one hand and a pile of shit in the other, you know, whatever. You know, it's just, but I am so, I, I just feel bad as a citizen of the United States, as a taxpayer, that my money is going towards federal law enforcement like this, that they would treat one of their own like this. 
It surprises me, but it doesn't surprise me when we find out the three who were behind this. And there's a special place in, in hell, um, probably staffed by a couple cops. <laughs> you well, know? you know what? I'll tell you what. That like, I, I think your statement is true. I do not. I do not wish that on them. Um, I like. I hope for them to to receive forgiveness, and I hope that they. You know what? Here's the thing. What they did was malicious. It was retaliatory. It was resentful. It was wrong. It was actually criminal. But people make mistakes. People do things wrong. Sometimes they even do things wrong for the wrong reasons. Um, hopefully, they will will learn personally. Hopefully, collectively as an agent and as an agency, we will learn to to treat our agents better. Um, I, I still have hope that good will come from all this, but like as to the individuals and to to to, to my agency, like collectively. Well, you're a good man because um, you can forgive them. I have, a, I mean, just personally, you know, we've just only met over this, but you know, we've got obviously a lot of people in common. I just, I feel like I owe you something. And just as a citizen for the work you did, for the stuff that you did, I feel like I owe you something, but I don't know what I can do for you other than help you, you know, tell your story. But I tell you, if it was within my power, I would ensure is that um, equal justice under the law would apply. And that I, I, you are such a good guy because you want to forgive these guys. I want to hold their feet to the fire and I want them to go through everything you had to go through so they can understand what it's like when you do your job and you are held to account the same way they tried to hold you to account of, off of something you never did. I mean, it, everything is proved that you didn't do it, but yet no, why they couldn't move on. I'm sorry. I got to stop here because I really will go sideways and I'll ruin all the good work that you've done in this interview so far. I'll tell you what the the blessing in 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 not having those threats run to the ground and the blessing in not trying to truly find out who arsoned my house. The blessing in that is that if they had found out who tried to burn my house down on top of my family and I identified them, Jay Dobbins' story would be much different right now because I would have taken a freaking rifle and made that right. The fact that there's no one to point that rifle at or there was no one to point that rifle at um, is the blessing in it. Because I, like, if they weren't going to get this right, I would have got it right. And I'd be doing this interview from a jail cell right now. Hmm. Well, we have never done one from a jail cell, so we'd have we to figure out the logistics. And we don't want to do it with you, brother. So, but oh. there, You <laughs> know what? There, there, you, you've you've got to, you, like, you, you've, all of us, got to try to find, like, the silver lining. And so, like, I've You are the master it, at it. And that's my silver lining, is that the blessing was that they never tagged, like, who tried to murder my family because... Um, like, Do you have suspicions? Like we would have found justice one way or another. What are your suspicions? Yeah, I, I, I think that that I have pretty good suspicions. I think ATF has pretty good suspicions, um, and and I and I think I know at least who knows, and I think I know who like probably had a hand in it. I mean, to discuss that like right now, it's speculation and speculation gets us nowhere. It's, it's just yeah. uh, like, I'm, 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 but I'm, what I'm, I'm saying is, but you've got a pretty, you, in your heart, you probably have a pretty good idea, right? I do. And, and the, uh, the frustrating part is ATF does too. Yeah. And DOJ does too. Yeah, of course they do. Uh, i tell you what, well, anyway, look, let's, let's cut that part of it off because we want to end on a really positive note. Let's talk about what you've done post-ATF because, dude, you were very popular. I mean, 
you had Gerard Butler modeled one of his characters in a film about you. I mean, you know, you got people, you got people in Hollywood modeling themselves around you. You've got, you've been on several documentaries. So what has life post ATF been like? What did you work on? And what are you working on now? Besides jdobbins.com, go to J-A-Y-D-O-B-Y-N-S.com. All your books are there, your movie credits, you know, you do some speaking, I think, and some other things, right? Yeah, my uh, life, once we got through that roller coaster of the threats and violence, uh, actually became very happy and very peaceful. My family's intact. Um, like, I, like I work every day to, to repair some of the things I did. Um, How are the got, kids? My kids are great. My kids are healthy and happy and productive. Uh, you know, Gwen is still by my side and, and is like uh, way better than anything I ever deserved to have in my life. Um, I, I did some, I did some training, some law enforcement training. You know, I wrote that second book, that catching hell book. Um, and probably what I'm most proud of is that, um, I'm a high school football coach. I'm the, uh, I'm the head coach of a, of a very small high school here in Tucson, Arizona. And when I came to the program, uh, two years ago, the program was 0 and 15 and, was on the the program was on the verge of being abolished because it was just such a dumpster fire. And in the last two years, we we're ten and three, and I've taken uh, a bunch of kids, a bunch of young men, um, who like I've I've grown very close to, and mm -hmm. um, tried to take the, like the lessons I've learned in life and translate them through football to these kids, and. Um, it's super satisfying. There's no pay in it. I don't get, I like I'm living off my pension, which anybody that's pulling a government pension knows that it's, there's nothing glamorous about it. <laughs> not at all. Not. Yeah. There's, there's nothing, there's nothing spectacular about it. I don't get paid to do the job. I do the job because I want to, I do the job because I love it because I love my boys. Do they know your background? Um, some of them do. Some of them don't like, I don't push that on them. Um, I, I think like, I, I don't make that a point of emphasis. I take a lot of those lessons learned, a lot of mm -hmm. those stories from my background and try to apply them and use them as, uh, as teaching moments through football. But like, I, like, I don't, I, I don't, uh, I don't push any, I don't push that on any of them. Yeah. But kids who play football, when they find out though, you play D one that you, you, I mean, when you talk about Andre Reed, Jerry Rice, you know, you say Doug Flutie or you got, I mean, these kids got to be looking at you going, Oh, that's cool. Well, um, you know, I think there's days when they love me. And like most coaches, I think there's days when they hate me. <laughs> now, let me ask you, have you ever grabbed the face mask of one of the players and told them what you really thought about them? What I went through as a player is no longer uh, acceptable behavior from coaches. <laughs> and Murph, by the way, 0-15 sounds like your record on what year was it. So you, you have something in common there. So there you go. Hey, every you episode. Be, like, like I always say, you can be a leader or you can be a follower. I'm being a leader in the losing category. Yeah. So every episode we do, a, we'll do our small town police blotter funny stories, but then I'll pull up a story from the past. And I do mean the past. Sometimes it's the 1880s, the 1910s. What year was it? I give them three choices. Dude's like over – got a better record than uh, I got, he does. I think I got three or four last year. Yeah, out of 30. <laughs> so? <laughs> Which, by the way, is still the assistant coach's uh, winning uh, uh, one loss against Nick Saban. He may have lost a couple, but he's still 25-2 and two against all assistant coaches. But I'm not a Tide fan. By the way, Murph, I got, I got taken to task on uh, Twitter by somebody that says, am I going to quit saying slanderous things about UGA now that they won 28-13? to 13? Um, That's right. 
I don't, I, you know, I wasn't, it really wasn't about Georgia as much as Georgia beat Notre Dame one time, like, you know, University of Arizona. I can't let it go. I'm sorry. I'm not like you, Jay. I can't forgive. <laughs> I hold these things personal. There will be retribution. There will be another game and we will win. We'll go work Irish. On that. I'll, I'll, we'll work on that. I'll, I'll help you through it. <laughs> Hey, you well, hey. loved it, Jay. We did an interview yesterday, and I had to wear my Georgia sweatshirt. So the, the two guys that were no, let's no, let's be honest about this, Murph. You wore your Georgia sweatshirt for a total of five minutes because it's Florida and it's humid and it was too hot. So yeah, what's yeah. your loyalty to Georgia? Until you got uncomfortable, then you took it off. That's if right. you did, you have your shirt on. Oh, you didn't have a shirt. You didn't even have a team in the game, I'm, did you? That's no, right. But for whatever, yeah. By the way, <laughs> if 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 Jay had worn his cut the same way that you wore the Georgia thing, he would have been thrown out of the gang, you know, months ago. So anyway, hey, let's close he on was this. A lot younger than I was yesterday. Yes. Hey, let's close on this. Um, looking back, I don't like. I don't want to do this. What's your biggest regret? What's this? You know, that's kind of. You can look back and say all that stuff. Looking back, um, what part of your life probably impacted you the most? today now? I mean, what, 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 what things gave you the lasting impact? Um, you know, that when you think about stuff, you go, I made a good difference here. I did this, I did that. I don't know where the case fits into it. I don't know where black biscuit fits into it, but when you look back on your career and everything, what had the biggest impact on you? Uh, we touched on this very early in our discussion. The, the biggest thing, the thing that I cherish the most um, are the people that I cross paths with. I, I, I had, I cross paths with amazing, amazing people, uh, especially in my professional career that uh, inspired me, that led me, that helped me, that guided me. Um, people that when things were breaking bad and it was very unpopular to be Jay Dobbins' friend stood by my side. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's it's the people that that's that's ultimately what I miss about the job. I don't miss the operations. I don't miss kicking doors or search warrants or undercover deals. I miss the the people and like the collective effort to come together to try to do something good. Um, it's always always the relationships and the people, the camaraderie. That's what you miss. Same yeah. here. Well, man, we are going on close to four hours. I mean, and we knew this was going to take some time. And so, mm -hmm. you know, let's bring this to a close, but I got to tell you, Jay, you know, first of all, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of just what you've done. Uh, mm -hmm. Your book, like I said, I'm through almost through the first one and I'll, I'll finish the second one, but for you to be so trans, very few people would put their life out there on the line like that to, for everybody to see and talk about it in the way that you did. So just from that standpoint, I think you have served law enforcement well because you were honest about your stories. Actually, I, w I do have one final question for you. What advice would you have for people going into this profession today? Because it has totally changed from, I got, my first job was in 82. I think you said yours was 84 or 87, um, you know, and Steve, yours was what, 1842 or something like that? 1975, uh, you old fart. Oh, no, that was the new uh, episode with Tim McGraw and Faith Hill, 1883 uh, on uh, Paramount Plus. It's the precursor to Yellowstone. But anyway, whatever. <laughs> I, I, I realize this is too too sophisticated for you, but... Um, what, what advice, when you're looking at it, would you give to people wanting to go into this profession, whether it's federal, state, tri you know, tribal, state, local? What do you tell them? I think any young person that's um, considering law enforcement is that it is, um, it would be difficult in my mind to find a more noble profession. I think that it, it, it is the ultimate way professionally to give of yourself for the benefit of other people. Um, 
And so it's, it's, it's not for everybody. Not everybody has that heart for it. Not everybody has that, that selflessness and that sacrifice. But we touched on this earlier. Um, everything you do in your career as a lawman like goes to serving someone else and, and, and goes to taking care of someone else. And if that's in your heart, um, it would truly be harder to find a more noble way to earn a living than to carry a badge and carry a gun and go out and, and put your life on the line to protect and defend others, people's lives. Very well said, you know, and, and I know you won't agree with this because no, no true hero ever does, but you know, you are a true hero for your actions, for the sacrifices, your commitment, your dedication, everything that brought this to a successful conclusion, screw the people that tried to screw over you. Um, they'll never understand what this this badge of honor, this code of honor we have between us, what that's all about. They'll never understand that. They're bureaucrats. But I also want to recognize uh, your wife and children because they're, they're our real heroes as well. You know, we've, we had my wife on the show here just was it last week, I think, talking about, you know, she got to talk about how great it is to be married to such a peach like me, you know. We filed that under our fiction section of the yeah. podcast. Yes. <laughs> but that's those are the unsung heroes in all of this. You know, our families, it's just like you said, not, not everybody's cut out to be a police officer, to be a public servant. Not everybody is cut out to be the spouse of a public servant either. I mean, the shit that she went through, the arson of her house, oh, my gosh. I mean, I, I don't know any other police officer that's gone through that much. And, and when I say police officer, I'm talking about law enforcement professionals. So, you know, from, from Morgan and I and all the listeners of Game of Crimes, God bless you. God bless Gwen. God bless both your children. You're true freaking heroes. And don't, don't deny it because I'll, I'll just have to keep talking and we don't want that to happen. No, that's that. That's very kind, and and your audience can't see this because, we're, like, we're recording this with some video. But I'm looking at both you guys. Um, you have your awards on the wall, and 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 Steve, you got your challenge coins there and awards. And um, I th I think if I don't know if you've noticed, but from behind me, it's all your kids. It's it's my family. It's my yeah. wife and my kids. Um, because of the. Uh, because of the unfortunate way my career ended at ATF, anything that that I have that has ATF on it is now in the landfill. Mm -hmm. um, that was that was a way for me to cleanse that out of mm -hmm. my life. But um, but I but I appreciate you guys having me. I'm very flattered. Um, I, I feel the same with the words you spoke about me. I feel the same way towards you guys and towards many of the people out there in your audience. And I hope that we uh, gave them uh, uh, an entertaining. Uh, podcast to listen to. I, I hope they, I hope your audience likes it. Well, I, they will trust me. Like I said, at, but between Connie and you, you guys were tied for first in terms of who people wanted to hear from. So the fact mm -hmm. that we got to hear it like this, uh, what a great story. I guarantee you, this is going to be a, an epic uh, episode. Right. Oh, and I just, I hope, you know, brother, I hope we get to meet in person someday so I can personally shake your hand. I really do. Yeah. Someday, someday we'll do that. Um, the first uh, 10 beers are on me. Lucky well, for man. you, I don't drink. First, how about the first 10 ginger ales? Well, you, you, no, if he's drinking ginger ale, it means he's <laughs> wired. He's a snitch. <laughs> That's what the cops used to think. Perfect. Murph would show up drinking ginger ale. Are you from OPR? What yeah. are you doing? You snitching on me? Anyway. One so, hey, cop doesn't drink, right? That's right. Hey, this is me saluting you, sir. The audience can't see this. Thank you very much, everybody. 
Hang on, stay tuned for the debrief. Man, if this story doesn't motivate you and if it just doesn't make you think, just get down on your knees and thank God that there are people like Jaybird Dobbins Mm -hmm. out there protecting folks like us from some of the most dangerous people to roam the streets, man. I don't know where your priorities are, but there's not enough I can do to thank Jaybird for what he did for his community, for his state, for his country. Absolutely. You know, Javier and I both worked undercover Never, never, never anything even close to what Jay did. You know, our undercovers were usually just meetings, uh, might last an hour or two, you know, usually in a, in a in a decent location. But years living with these guys, partying with them, putting up with their crap, you know, having to become a prospect and a hang around and, and do their bidding, you know, run and get hot dogs and, you know, whatever it is they tell you to do. I mean, that's just, that's humiliating, I think. But, uh, man, this guy just dedicated to his profession, focused on his mission. He did um, suffer a little bit, you know, where he was kind of leaning towards the Stockholm Syndrome, where he might be uh, feeling a little bad for the bad guys. And at the end, you know, he's talking about, Jay talks about how he had feelings for these guys when they found out he was a cop and how it negatively affected him because he had grown to have a little bit of – Friendship with some of these people. I don't want to say admiration because I don't think he admired them at all. No. But, uh, man, that's that's just one of the best freaking stories. And then here you got this badass tough guy who is now freely coaching high school football, not charging him a penny. And he takes him from 0 and 15 to 10 and 3 or whatever. Outstanding. Outstanding. The other thing, too, is, uh, and then when he talks about, I didn't realize it. But I tell you, I am I am insulted on his behalf. I'm pissed off on his behalf. The people that were also involved in this debacle mm-hmm. called Fast and Furious, mm-hmm. the one where Brian Terry, the border agent, was killed, the guns used, they were sent, you know, into Mexico, used probably to kill hundreds of other people. The fact that these three guys, he says, to a man were involved in screwing him over. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to this day, I, I think, you know, I, then- I can't... Well, then it try, just reminds try, me, Steve, real quick. Reminds me of the the cops who left Alex Collins out there yeah. hanging out to dry. Yeah, you know th- th- there is. You, you show up at a convention, pal. Don't sit next to me. Yep, and then accuse him of of burning down his own house and trying to kill his own family. It's just disgusting. That, that is horrific. Those people need to be held accountable. But you know, here we are getting on our. Our soapboxes again. Well, again. yes, we are. But hey, guys, you can listen to it. We got the books posted, you know, on our episode page. Got some great pictures of Jay. You know, there's just some great stuff. So look, um, what a great episode. And if you think that episode was great, we got more coming to you. But the only way you're going to find out is for us to finish this outro. So guess what? Go to <laughs> Apple and Spotify. Hit those five stars. It's magic. We don't know how it works. We just know that it does. It really does help us, folks. Uh, I mean, and we really do appreciate it. So also head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more information about the show as well. Also go to our newly established book page. Number one is Manhunters. Of course, Steve always mm-hmm. wants it Woo-hoo. there. He paid to have it placed first. It's like, you know, <laughs> the grocery store. Pepsi plays to have their, you know, stuff put out in front right. of Coke. But anyway, but uh, go there. Also, you know, we got a lot of good stuff. Also head on over to patreon.com slash game of crimes. 
If you think this stuff is good, we got great stuff coming up, and we may do a special episode with Jaybird where we go in deep on just one topic and talk about stuff we're going to talk with him. Also, uh, go over to paypal.com. Use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gameofcrimes. Whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and help you bring you more exciting content. But again, I'm telling you, man, patreon.com. That's that's where it's at. We're, we're working hard every month, really. Every month we're putting out a lot of content. Mm-hmm. Head on over there. But Steve, I got to tell you, man, uh, if they thought this was good, we got some really great interviews coming up. You're working on some others too right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, just give them a quick tease about one of them you've just been uh, working on. There was everybody knows about a DE agent who was kidnapped, tortured, and murdered repeatedly, not murdered once, but repeatedly in Mexico. That's uh, Kiki Camarena. We're talking to uh, an individual now, hope to get him on the show soon, who actually participated, who was stationed there during Kiki's time, who actually participated in the manhunt and the subsequent investigation. You're going to hear the true story about Kiki Camarena. It's none of this bullshit that you hear on. There's one show out there called The Last Narc. He's going to put all those rumors to, to rest. Yeah, put it to rest. Well, hey, we're going to put this episode to rest. And we're going to do it by saying thank you once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. 